Welcome to Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed, a bi-weekly podcast in collaboration with the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, focusing on expert interviews to explore the insights, habits, and expertise of individuals both in and outside of medicine. My name is Dr. Kara King, and I am your host. I hope you all are having a wonderful start to the holiday season. I ran my annual turkey trot last week and burned approximately 50 calories and then consumed 500 million calories that night. So I think I'm right on track. Now, we are so sorry for the hiatus. Things have been a bit busy as we are gearing up for our annual SGS winter postgrad course in La Jolla starting December 1st. I'm flying out tomorrow morning and I hope to see a lot of you guys there. This year's agenda is going to be really unique and really exciting and that we are changing up the format. We are having all panel sessions with minimal lectures, minimal PowerPoints, and all of the videos. We're including a lot of simulation and a cadaver lab. And so I think we're going to have just a truly tremendous week. Now, I'm excited to have Dr. Louise King today for part two of her fantastic episode. If you haven't listened to part one, make sure you download it. She is incredibly well-spoken and wise and has such a unique perspective through her bioethics lens. On today's episode, she dives into the importance of appropriate reimbursement for gynecologic procedures, as well as action items to help close these gaps. She also discusses the difficulties in navigating the medical system, especially for endometriosis care from the patient perspective. We hope you enjoy. Let's start with reimbursement for a moment. You're right. One of the most striking papers is the one that you're referencing that's looking at urology compared to gynecology in procedures that are very similar and how urology reimbursement is so much more. And then my brain goes to endometriosis where those ICD codes haven't changed in like 10 years. There's like five codes and they are not at all specific. And so Ted Lee and I are actually working on changing these codes and it's on under its like fifth revision and fingers crossed it's going to go through. But we've proposed like four or five pages of new ICD codes. And I think superficially, sometimes we don't understand what this actually means for downstream effects, just like you're saying. So this isn't just so like we can make more salary. That's not it at all, right? I mean, the downstream impact has to do with funding and support for all facets of our field meaning it can be from administration support, right, to research support, to OR block time support, um, which ultimately results in in optimizing care for all of our patients. So it has nothing to do with really reimbursement personally, which sometimes I think that's what superficially it looks like, but it's actually all of those downstream effects, right? Oh, you're so right. And thank you to and, and Ted for all your efforts. I've, I've heard about those edits to the the codes for endo percolating through and they're exceptional and I, I really hope they'll pass through. Yeah, it's it, it. we have a new chair at my institution and I know that as she's starting to, she's incredible and I know that she is frustrated at times by the opportunity to be at different conversations because we are very much in the back seat and I wish it were only about you know, the needs of all of our patients, but these are big institutions in these hospitals and it has to do with how much money you're pulling in, right? And so for me, if and for you, I'm sure this is true as well. When I take, I take on almost exclusively very advanced endo cases, they take four or five, six hours. It's not, and then they go home the same day. So by definition, I've lost the hospital money every time. Right? I've been in the OR too long. Yeah, we can bill for the OR time, but the patient's not going to stay overnight. So that's not a good billing strategy. And I know all of this sounds crass, but it's just, 
It's just the way it is. And then, um, you know, my time isn't reimbursed almost at all, basically. And, and that shouldn't be what we think about. And if we had, you know, a perfect system, it would be about outcomes and ensuring our patients get the best outcomes and that we have a workforce that can assure those. But we don't have a system designed that way. So working within the system that we have, creating those code changes that you and Ted have created for endometriosis is exceptionally important. It's going to bring more resources in so that you know patients, including my daughter, who's an endometriosis patient, will get the care that they need, not because we're altruistic and we make sure it happens, but because it's appropriately reimbursed. And we'll still all be wonderful, altruistic people and do what we need to do, but you can't indefinitely rely on the altruism of gyne surgeons to provide care to patients who are as deserving as any other patients of, of excellent care. Exactly right. How articulate that was. I get a little bit emotional about this topic, of course, because it, it affects my kid too. You know, I mean, it's really, really tough when... I care so deeply for my patients as well, but it's just really tough to see anybody suffering and, and really not having access to the care they need. And you and thank you for opening up about your daughter. I mean, you open up a really good point in that, I mean, you are a GYN surgeon. You understand all the ins and outs. And even probably navigating this system for your daughter has been challenging. And then thinking about what it must feel like when you're not in the system, like what that experience is like. Yeah, I can't, I've always had, sympathy if not empathy for my patients i try to have empathy but you know that's that's a whole different thing right but it never occurred to me how incredibly day-to-day -day tough it is until my own daughter was suffering through it and even with all of the personal connections i have it's still hard to get her the right care and so that's if if i have trouble getting good comprehensive care for an endometriosis patient as an endometriosis surgeon it's a problem. You think about what yeah. everyone deals with day to day. It's just insanity. And, it, and I think it, it's not because people aren't trying to do the best they can. And we get back to, this, to the original discussion we had a few moments ago. Most specialists in general OBGYN don't have that much education in endometriosis. They don't know how to do the surgeries past stage one, really. And and they don't know about the complexities of interdisciplinary care that are required to achieve really good pain control and, and really good outcomes. And so within the context of the limited knowledge that they have, they're offering what they can, but that's very limited. And then you and I and all of our colleagues see patients seven, eight, ten years later just desperately suffering or addicted to opioids or whatever it might be. And we need to create better funding all the way back so that everybody can have the right training and the right access to resources so that this 10 to 15% of the female population or is not affected in this way and, and left without resources. So I'm really excited about the work you and Ted have done. It's, it's exceptional. There's so much that we need to do, but that's a fabulous, fabulous first step. Thank you. And you, know, you mentioned the, the seven to 10 year delay for most patients to be diagnosed with endometriosis. That medical trauma is real, right? Like when you look at your patient's face and you see the years and years of gaslighting that many have gone through. And 
just to see their face and their oftentimes lack of trust in the medical system in general, which how can you blame them, right? It just, it, you're right. It puts a fire under me to, to congregate the masses and we, we just need to do better. That's what it comes down to is this, the status quo right now is not good enough. Yeah, it's, I mean, I just can't agree with you more. It's, it, and it's disheartening because this, we can tell this exact same story if we talk about fibroids and tell this exact same story if it relates to just general access to good preventative care as it relates to STDs and education, at least across the entire country. So there are a lot of areas in which we're really falling short, but we don't have to fall short. We're just not being given the right resources to, to do what we could all do. So as, as you've gone through this journey with your daughter, was there any aspect that was really enlightening to you from that patient perspective, right? So like you said, empathy versus sympathy. And I mean, I'm blessed that I don't have endometriosis. I've never lived on that side of what it feels like. Was there anything when you flipped that lens that, that felt unique to you that you weren't expecting? Yeah, well, for one thing, I don't have it either. So when she started to complain of painful periods, I <laughs> did the typical thing. I was like, well, it takes some ibuprofen. And I wasn't listening, honestly, at first. Yeah. I'm ashamed to say um, I didn't take her seriously, as, as is the case for most kids. And, you know, so there was a good year of her complaining and, and her not being taken seriously. And, and so I just, I, I, I think there needs to be another way for us to evaluate young women, young girls, when they're starting to complain of period pain. Because even with all of my knowledge, I still said, oh, well, that can be normal. Take some ibuprofen. She, she, I've apologized to her profusely for that many times, and she's sort of forgiven me. <laughs> but she has pointed out, this is your literal job, mom. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So um, that part of it was, was really tough. And then I was able to get her pretty quickly into care. Um, but then she, like so many other young women and, and women up into menopause, has severe side effects from hormonal therapy, like profound. And that was also another thing where I read the literature and I'm like, but you're not supposed to react that way. It's supposed to be really rare. <laughs> right. Less than 1%. Um, what? Yeah. yeah. You're not really that profoundly sad, are you? <laughs> you're like, yes, I am. So, you know, we really need to listen to our patients when they tell us they have mood disturbance on hormones because they really do. You know, I always felt like I listened to patients about that. I know now that from patients telling me that they know that I really mean it when I say to them that I really believe them when they tell me about these different things now. And I think that comes from confronting with my kid that I initially honestly was, thought she was exaggerating and she really wasn't exaggerating. So we've got to find better options. There's a really great trial in London right now. You might know about it. So there's, there's a lot of different trials going on with possible non-hormonal uh, options out there. And obviously surgery, my daughter's had surgery, um, but she still has pain as is frequently the case. Um, it's a lot better, but she just can't take, you know, with, with the hormones on board, she doesn't have pain, but she's, she just cannot control her moods. So it's better to have pain once a month and not have a mood disturbance. And, and then we'll, we'll see where we go from there. And then the uncertainty of, of everything about endometriosis, because not enough money has gone into research to really figure out good options moving forward. 
incredibly frustrating, especially for a young adult to be saddled with that level of, well, we just don't know. It just feels like the world has left you out in the cold. You know, it's like, what do you mean you don't know? You know, there's so many things out there that medicine deals with so well. And, you know, but for young women, oh, well, we just don't know. You know, very upsetting to me, but right now I'm channeling all my little kiddos kind of rage about this. She gets really, really upset about it and I don't blame her. Man, like adolescence, right? Like 14 to 18 was really hard without having all of this, right? I think back yeah. to those years. Oh my God, I barely made it through, right? And that was without oh, like so difficult. without social yeah. media or cell phones or all the things our kids have to go through now. I just can't imagine that mental impact that, that she's living with. It's really, really hard on her. And, um, and I know it's really, really hard on all young women and who face this all women who face this. It's just, it, it just rocks their whole world and we need to do a better job of, of uh, dealing with it, of creating better solutions for it, I should say. Right. And you, you, you brought up two important things that made me think. Number one, we don't have very many non-hormonal options, like any, which is just ridiculous. Like we need more research in this area. So that's one really important part of this. And the second thing that, that you made me think about is Shannon Cohn. She's awesome. And awesome. what, right? So, But she has an amazing initiative with school nurses. Again, just educating people about things that they should be looking for that are not normal. And so again, knowing what you know, knowing what you don't know, and just educating the masses, I think, is a, a really tangible way to hopefully make future progress in this area. Oh, I, yeah, I totally agree with you. And the end of what video that goes out to nurses is amazing. I know they have another video coming out soon about legislative action, I believe. And um, she's an incredible filmmaker, a lawyer as well, I believe, and just incredibly talented. We raised some money to get the end of what videos out to school nurses here in Boston. And it's, it's really wonderful. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. I can't wait for her. her yeah. Just, just like you said, her next video is coming out, I think this fall. So I'm excited to see it for sure. Thank you. Absolutely. So I, I want to go back and tap your brain a little bit about this idea of tracking residents. And you said that you recently presented this to your department. Do you mind if I ask what their impressions were? They didn't, it was in the context of talking about this whole topic. And so it was, I just threw it out there as here's one potential solution. A lot of people have said they're very interested in it, but it's, I think, as with everything, it's like moving a massive boat or like un, unsticking the boat in the Suez or whatever. You know, it's like... <laughs> How are you going to get this kind of change to happen? And so I'm waiting to see if there's enough of a momentum of interest that I could reach out to you and say, okay, so like, how do you actually make this happen? Yeah. Because I look, you know, I've looked online and looked at your, the way that you achieve the curriculum and it, it's, a, it, it's an innovative way to use block systems, which is fabulous. I think it's doable. It doesn't seem like it's terrifically complicated. And I think people like it. I think the reluctance and the fear is, and this is what I hear from a lot of uh, attendings who've talked to me. A lot of people come and talk to me about all these issues, assuming, and, and I always guarantee total confidentiality about what they say, but I can say some of their comments and no one would know who said them. So many people come to me and say, I actually would love to give up surgery, mm. but I'm worried 
you know, then I'd just be obstetrics. And what if later I wanted to move to a different job, but there was no opportunity for me to move because I only did obstetrics or I needed to move for family reasons or whatever it might be, right? Um, I have a skill set that I worked really hard to gain and privileges associated with that skill set. You're asking me to voluntarily give that up and narrow my choices. Now, of course, you and I did that, right? Mm-hmm. So frequently in restaurants is you realize you're talking to someone who gave up. <laughs> I'm living it. Here I am. I actually really love L&D. I'm really good at forceps. <laughs> um, yeah. But, okay. Um, so I think that's this fear, right? If if I'm going to, let's say I come into a program and I'm going to be training in OBGYN, if I track, but then don't get into a surgical fellowship and I'm trying to find a job, am I going to be able to get a job? And my argument would be, of course, you're still trained as an obstetrician. You can absolutely get a job. So, but that's the fear. It's this, this fear of letting go of something that, that, that might be useful to you in the past, sort of like hoarding almost. Right? <laughs> but, but, and then I think there's also another aspect to it. This is my husband's story. He, he'd be fine with me sharing it. He's an REI. And I don't remember how many years back, he gave up all major surgical privileges because he wasn't doing them that much. He was, he's a really good surgeon. But he's like, when I'm an REI, I'm doing mostly REI stuff, um, which for me is mostly IVF and this kind of thing. So there's no reason for me to keep major privileges. I'm not going to do majors. I'm not on call to do majors. Right. I'm not going to go and give it up. And he said it was still really hard for him to like sign the thing that said I'm giving these up. He's like, I worked really hard for these. I trained before IVF even existed. I was a really good complex surgeon, you know. Right. You know, he is really good. So that identity aspect of Mm -hmm. it is I think part of part of it too. And one thing that I love to say to people is, well, flip the switch here. Think about what you do on the labor floor. You know, obstetricians are kick ass. Yeah, they are. We need to build up. Yeah, they are. You know, it's, it's, it's suffers from the same sort of discriminatory lens that, that all of women's healthcare suffers from, but almost doubly so. And, and people are always like, well, L&D's off in this other part of the hospital. Nobody goes there. <laughs> it's frowned upon right, somehow. Right. The things that are accomplished, the, the life saving that happens like every minute in L&D is insane. So we really need to build people up and be like, being an, an absolutely amazing and talented obstetrician is absolutely amazing. Yes. So that they don't feel like they're giving up, which they aren't, you know. They feel like they're giving up being a surgeon. They're still surgeons. They're just obstetrical surgeons. And I would like to remove just from that statement. They are obstetrical surgeons and they are kick-ass obstetrical surgeons. And that's amazing. So I don't know how how we're going to get there exactly, but um, I hope we can. Such a good point. You know, this morning I put on a, a major vascular injury simulation for my residents. Love those. I, I have know. One of those. I oh. love them too. And we, during our debrief, we were talking about um, the OB side of things compared to the GYN side of things. And my residents were like, oh yeah, we have these type of teams in OB. And when we get into, you know, massive blood loss, we have someone who already documents everything on the board. They're just talking about all these amazing things built into OB for these really complex obstetrical procedures where their blood loss is like liters upon liters upon liters. I'm like, God, you're right there, warriors. Like you guys are amazing surgeons and physicians on the obstetrical side. I have huge kudos to you. OB terrifies me now. I'm scared of that unit. And so you're right. I 
I feel like sometimes we don't give it the respect that it deserves, but it is an amazing subspecialty in and of itself. Yeah, I mean, like one of the biggest pushes right now is how to build good interdisciplinary teamwork. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, I mean, if there was a, there is no better example of of fabulous interdisciplinary teamwork than the number of teams that work seamlessly together to do a multiple birth. Yes. Right? Think about what's accomplished in one of those or or any complex birth, really. Right. I mean, incredible multidisciplinary teamwork. And so people really need to tout that and show how valuable it is. The ORs could learn so much from um, how teams communicate on L&D about major transfusion protocols and things like that. Yes. So there's, there's a lot of work to be done. But I think the more that we see this as... And if we could all start over again, I, I said this earlier, but if we could just put every ob guy in a room together and say, what would you like to see for your patients? Yeah. They would design highly trained, high volume teams for each of the different things that we do. That's that's what they would conclude every time right. with some component of generalist practice for areas in which such subspecialty practice isn't easily accessible. But you know that's what we'd come up with. Yeah. So let's just all get together and come up with it. I agree. <laughs> I am such an ideal state person. I just want to go to the ideal state and see where we are and just you know, make that delta small. I'm totally with you. We all have the same vision. We all want the same outcomes. It's just yeah. changing the system is so hard. It's so hard. Yeah, and seeing where we have this commonality of goals, I think is going to be the way forward. Unfortunately, most of my conversations about this topic are behind the scenes, fairly contentious where people just get very angry. And I, and again, I think I, I believe that I understand where they're coming from, that this is a very emotional thing about feeling badly that you may not have been providing the right care, which is not what I'm saying, but that's what it feels like what I'm saying, or just having a, an, a sense that your identity and what you've worked all your life for is being taken away from you. Yes. Those are deep emotions. And so I understand why it sparks a lot of very difficult conversations, which I'm very willing to continue to have. <laughs> Thank goodness for your JD. We all appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> That's more of a mediation technique. <laughs> it's like, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. I'm I'm having this picture in my head, Louise, of you and your husband sitting at dinner and him being like, yes, I've done one major a month for the past 10 months. And you like sliding your paper across the table and being like, <laughs> well, honey, I think maybe you should stop doing those cases. <laughs> well, to his credit, he yeah. did this long before he met me. We've oh, been married he? about uh, six years now. Oh, nice. So, um, so he came to that conclusion on his own. A lot of REIs have come to that conclusion. Yeah. And, I, and to their credit, right? it's not easy. You're right, but as the, as, the, as the field evolves, like you said, REIs. I mean, MIGs came from REI, right? So true, exactly. Yeah, yeah, REIs used to be doing all these complex surgeries, and then IVF became a whole thing in a, in and of itself, which has taken up time. Yeah, yeah. yeah REI was originally created in the 1970s by Dr. Taylor when he created Gynonc MFM, and REI was meant to be the subspecialists in advanced gynecologic surgery. And then they developed IVF after that. So um, then it changed its its picture. And there are still some fabulous REIs who operate extensively, but we right. would probably call them more MIG surgeons than REIs. Right. And here at the clinic, our our REIs, right? Dr. Tommaso Falcone, yeah, Rebecca exactly. Flick used to be here. Um, she now is over at UH. And then our current uh, REI staff, mm-hmm. they still enjoy operating very much and have, have a higher volume practice. Yeah. So... Right. Yeah, so there's definitely some who've kept going, and and that's one choice. But 
the vast majority of yes. REIs. Have, and, and if you were only going to be doing those surgeries once in a while, it makes sense. You got to step back. Exactly. And I'm thinking about the structure, again, this, the systemic structure of our practice about how to maintain surgical skills when you're not having a high volume, like co-scrubbing, you make no money. You can't do that, you know, or there's different aspects that could help your skills. But from a financial standpoint, it's, it's not sustainable or feasible in most hospital systems. That's exactly true. And unfortunately, the SIM also, I don't think really, it might in the future, but it doesn't currently fill that gap. So you really do have to be doing your own volume at a fairly decent amount. From a practice standpoint, you can imagine most practices have what, three to seven people within them, something along those lines. So identifying one or two who are going to be the high volume surgeons in any given practice is absolutely feasible. And that would be what tracking would be. It doesn't mean that they would never do OB. They might take labor call, which is not uncommon for a lot of our AGL MIGS graduates to go into a practice where they're going to do most of the surgeries and take some of the labor call. So it's very feasible. Just we want to make it more feasible so that it's not, you know, why does it fall upon individual practices to try to work those economics out. The, the billing and, and reimbursement for a procedure should be based on what is an adequate payment for that effort. And that's how the calculation, which is a fairly complex algorithm, works. But again, we all started in OBGYN with one hand tied behind our back. So we've been clawing back to some level of equity, but we started behind. And then as you, I'm sure you've seen some of the work that describes that as more and more women have joined our workforce in OB-GYN. The actual ability to bill for OB-GYN has decreased while urology has continued to increase. And then orthopedics has gone through the roof for some reason. And that that graph, if you're interested in seeing it, is in the supplemental material for the Green Journal paper that I, that I published. But it's pretty dramatic that OB-GYN just keeps getting pushed down. But it's partly because we started at a lower level too. It's... Oh my goodness, unethical. Like you like you keep saying. I mean, it's absolutely just ludicrous, just like you're just like you're mentioning that that difference of specialties, and it just happens to be that they're more male dominant, right? Like orthopedics, these male dominant fields are are the reimbursements are going up while we're moving in, in the opposite direction. And we'll absolutely include that graph in our show notes. So for everyone who's listening oh, okay. today, yeah, we'll, it's, we'll link yeah, that. It's from a, a, a paper written by um, Dr. Pelly and her colleagues. Great. So it's very well referenced so that you guys can look up. Perfect. The paper. We'll for sure include that because that's really important information. And I, I can't go through a show without mentioning surgical coaching. So I am just going to throw that out there. <laughs> that it's I my, love coaching. <laughs> you were my coach for a bit there. And yeah. Um, yeah, it's so, it's, it's, I think that's also an interesting way to kind of help, again, optimize technical and non-technical performance. So just another little bug for surgical coaching. Um, I'm a massive fan. I'm a, a certified coach. <laughs> yes, and, you are. and the process just of becoming a certified coach was incredibly uh, useful to me in so many ways. I mean, I really upped my game in terms of just my teaching style, I think, for the residents too, um, through that process. And I'm trying to institute some sort of program in surgical coaching in my institution, but it's hard to get people dedicated time for it. Yeah. Um, but I'm working on it. Awesome. You know, Janet Dombrowski, who's our executive coach, who was part of your academy's coach she training. Is she is amazing. And she is the Talin lecturer at SGS this month. Isn't that oh, exciting? Fantastic. 
Well, I encourage everybody to, to tune in because I really, my, my whole way of approaching teaching has changed based on that experience going through that, the program of getting certified and absolutely for the better. And then I just keep peppering all of my teaching talks with uh, references to you know, creating goals together and exploring, you know, how you can facilitate somebody moving themselves for it as yes. opposed to dragging it along. It's very much Peace Corps type, you know, yes. teaching the fish into a fish kind of thing. But it's it was great. Oh, I love that. I love that you give me goosebumps that you incorporated still. That's awesome. Yeah, I believe in it so much. All right, Louise, on our last comment, I don't know how it's already been an hour. On our last comment, can you help give me and all of our listeners actionable ways that we can help push all the things that we're talking about forward, like through um, like our legislature. You know what I mean? Like, is there, are there ways yeah. that we can like contact our state representatives and help put this on their radar? You can absolutely forward the paper to your state reps if you like. ACOG is really, I believe, a good partner in all of this. They're doing the best they can. Um, they have a lot of conflicting interests and needs and purposes and all of that, but they're really invested in creating good solutions. I mean, you're working with ACOG to, to help push forward the, the endometriosis billing changes, I know, and I know that they're really invested in that process. They actually want people to write to them and explain to them how they're feeling. What I would love to see is all the people who are affected by this, gyne surgeons and patients alike, just writing to the CHEC, C-H-E-C, which is the committee that, that looks at at billing codes from ACOG and as their advocacy arm or anybody you can think of at ACOG, really, they're really receptive, honestly. Send them your emails and your thoughts and, and what you see as a problem because if they don't have that feedback, they don't know what their agenda is, right? So the, their agenda is derived from the membership and from our interest and our engagement with them. So if you feel that this is a key issue and one that could be fixed in the way I'm proposing could be fixed or in your own way that you think it could be fixed, write to them because they are our biggest voice on the Hill and they're really great partners for us. I love those ideas. And we'll, like I said, include all this in our show notes to make it really easy, easily accessible. So again, teaming up with our colleagues and our patients and just you know, stronger together, moving this forward. Absolutely. Louise, thank you so much for your time. It is always a pleasure. And like I said, before we even started, we will find a date to get you back on here because you are so wise. I love love it. Thanks so much. Until next time, have a great night. Thank you. Thanks. And that is all for this episode of Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed. Join us next episode for more expert insights and perspectives. From all of us at the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, thanks for listening.